0: This is the Wednesday, January tenth, two 2018 edition of our little weather get-together, and we're happy uh, to have you all tonight. It's been a much calmer weather week across the Southeast and the Carolinas, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But tonight, our guest, uh, we have Andreas uh, Pride. Sorry, I knew I was going to mess that up, but Andreas Pride, uh, he will be with us tonight. He's from NCAR, uh, and I think he's out in Colorado tonight. So uh, we're going to be talking about summertime thunderstorms. I know... Uh, probably kind of far from your mind right now with the winter season ongoing, but, uh, we're talking about, uh, summertime thunderstorms. Are they getting stronger and are we getting more rain and, and, uh, flooding events out of them? So, uh, that is our topic tonight, but before we dive into that, let's go over a few housekeeping rules. This is a live broadcast, so if you have any questions throughout the, uh, night, you can, uh, send them our way many different ways. We're on Facebook Live, Periscope, on our Face uh, YouTube, uh, channel, as well as, um... Yeah, I think that's it. Periscope, Facebook Live, and YouTube. So if you're listening on the uh, rebroadcast of the, pod, of the podcast, we'll uh, share some information at the end of the show how you can get uh, in touch with us. So with that, I will uh, pass it around. Shay, I think we're going to talk a little bit about the weather before we get into uh, the, uh, the topic tonight. And Shay, you went from a winter wonderland to almost summertime heat in the span of a couple of days so how is snowy charleston
1: now (laughs) i'll tell you what that was a long cold spell in fact it was our first uh it was our number one longest cold spell for low temperature averages mean averages for uh, i mean i think it was a nine-day stretch total Um, i know there was a seven day stretch in there and then we had the second lowest high temperature mean average so um you know this was a very cold week leading up to the snowstorm that we just had And, uh, and i'll share screen the let me see if i can find it here let me switch over to our snowfall totals and make sure you can see that uh see what i'm talking about here uh what we had we had low pressure that developed off of the coastline off of florida uh, developed in the bahamas and headed straight north so it wasn't quite your typical miller a setup we, we we sort of tried to you know find out what kind of system this was what kind of pattern it was and uh we think it was some sort of hybrid but either way these are the kind of lows when you get this kind of cold pattern in the southeast that dump snow along our coastline. To start out, it started out, as freezing rain in the morning, switched over to sleep, and then quickly transitioned to snow all day. We had it until about 730 or 8 o'clock at night. Most places got four to five inches inland, just inland along like Somerville areas, Goose Creek, Hanahan, Walterboro. We got uh, and, and some of these spots are saying 6.8, but we did have 7.3 in, in places like Somerville. So there's a few spots that had a little bit more. These are averages for these areas. Uh, but that's pretty significant for Charleston. Not only was it significant for us to see that much snow at one time, but it was a dry, fluffy snow, not like our wet snow, that actually stuck to the ground in full. And it stuck for about five days before we started getting some real melt on the street. So school's been out all last week. Um, it's just been an icy kind of a uh, – everyone's been iced in. Everyone's been, you know, had cabin fever. Kids just went back to school today in Berkeley County. Uh, now that the streets are clear, and, and yesterday we actually our temperatures went up. We got three degrees within our our um, record high of seventy-five degrees. We got to seventy, I think seventy-two degrees, no seventy-three degrees yesterday, uh, and the record is seventy-six. So uh, it just shows you how volatile, you know, how diverse the weather here in Charleston is. But uh, I tell you, that's one of the longest cooldowns I can remember ever here. And and you know, it was down the teens at night, and in the in the mid-thirties in the day at best. And once that snowpack hit the ground where we were supposed to get forties for highs. It kept it down. So you had your um, what's called surface albedo, which reflects sunlight. And so when you have lower albedo, you have um, more snowpack on the ground, which reflects the sunlight. And then your temperatures are cooler as a result. So that snow stuck around for a lot longer, which is very rare for our area. So very rare event overall. We're, we're getting out of it now. Most people are starting to get out of their colds. I know I had the flu in the cold over the weekend and just now getting out of it. But it was a really unique event, it really, really fun. Lots of really good pictures, lots of fun. The kids had fun, uh, lots of snowmen, and uh, lots of wrecks, too. So hopefully a lot of folks uh, learned a lot from this event as well. So enough about our weather. Scotty, back to you. Let's go around the other panels.
0: Well, Shay, the panel, they wanted me to ask you, and they wasn't brave enough to ask this. So they want to know, were you in your flip-flops and shorts yesterday with snow on the ground?
1: Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Board shorts, okay? You gotta have board shorts.
0: I'm, I'm telling you, you never, I mean, where else can you get 70 degree weather with snowpack on the ground? So I
1: know, I almost went to the beach, right, um, with a beach <laughs> chair, but our sea surface temperatures were about 41 to 42 degrees, so that's not going to feel too good with onshore flow.
0: No, no, that's a little chilly. Well, thank you for that yeah. report, Shay. Uh Let's go over to uh, James, who's in Charlotte tonight. James, uh, yourself and, and myself here in the Western Carolinas, we always oh, going to flirt with a little bit of ice on monday but that never materialized but we finally have warmed up i know you guys also in charlotte got close to 70 degrees yesterday and today
2: yeah you know that seems to be the trend that we beat the forecast each day by a couple degrees and i'm not complaining i sat outside yesterday enjoying the the weather Um uh, as so many as you uh may know i've got a in- inside thermometer sits up here in my home office and Um, I had turned the heat off yesterday, and obviously wasn't going to turn the air conditioner on, but uh, I looked, and it actually climbed almost to 90 degrees inside my office yesterday. (laughs) So, hello, January! Uh, But uh, yeah, I've been enjoying the, the last few nice warm days. We're in for some clouds and rain, but I will take it over the freezing temperatures. Scotty?
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's been a refreshing, uh, warm spell here the past couple of days. Well, I'm going to get to Eric in just a minute because I know he's preparing for the next winter event, but let's get to Ashley, who's in Texas tonight. Ashley, how's the things been there in the Lone Star State?
3: It's pretty good. We've been rebounding from all those cold temperatures. So the past few days and for the rest of the week, we're looking at 60s. So it's been mid-60s here, didn't even need a jacket. Um, a lot of the people in town for AMS in Austin have loved the warm weather we're having And really, it's probably going to be 60s until this weekend. We're going to get a cold front that's going to come through. And it'll really impact our low temperatures into the 20s, but we're still going to rebound into the 50s. So there's not really anything on our radar as of right now. So jacket weather
0: good point you make there. I've, you know, following a lot of uh, the AMS conference on Twitter and a lot of uh, folks have been commenting on how nice and warm the weather has been there in the Texas area. So a nice, nice refresher for everyone who's been in the deep cold and talking about that, Eric, you guys are getting ready to prepare for a little wintry weather yourself in Memphis.
4: Yeah, I think it's going to finally be our turn. And I thought Ashley was going to say it's going to be in the sixties here until it gets to the (laughs) eighties, but (laughs) she was going the other direction with that. Uh, Yeah, the 60s uh, are here, though, right now. We got to 60 today. First time since uh, probably mid-December. We've been hanging in this cold spell. Uh, Christmas through the first week of of January was one of the top five or six, I think, coldest on record. Um, So definitely definitely felt that uh, Arctic blast coming through. And then uh, we're warming back up tomorrow afternoon. I think we may get to 66 or 68 right ahead of the front. Uh, 12 hours later we'll be down to 32 and still falling and so it looks like we're going to get we're preparing for some ice here in Memphis we might get a little bit of snow um, but it does look like uh, freezing rain as that front comes through um, and drops the temperatures rain will be falling pre-dawn hours Friday and uh, might get a little sleet mixing with it and then as the as the low levels cool uh, go through the sleet and then maybe a little bit of snow and then wrap it up but Uh, potential is there for maybe as much as a quarter of an inch of ice here in Memphis. And uh, that's nothing to sneeze at. Definitely. We're going to have some, uh, in fact, a lot of people probably be sneezing after that with more (laughs) flu and everything else that'll be going around. Um, But yeah, it could be, uh, it could be somewhat significant. So we'll see, uh, we'll see how it plays out, hoping for the best and maybe just enough early enough in the morning to get those schools canceled, let everybody stay home and they can uh, have a four day weekend with MLK day on Monday. So
1: Well, Eric, I certainly hope you guys get more snow than sleet. That's what we were worried about here in Charleston uh, was getting more freezing rain and sleet buildup before the snows, but we only got about a 10th of an inch, maybe a little bit more than that. And then once it converted, there were no issues. I mean, there were very few power outages around town and maybe just a pocket, you know, a few pockets here and there of neighborhoods, but yeah, I hope the best for you guys. I hope you get more flakes than anything else.
4: Yeah, I certainly hope so. It's going to take a good quarter of an inch to cause too much in the way of power outages, but you know, a few tent or a 10th or so is going to, is going to mess up the roads and the overpasses and all the flyovers and stuff we have around here. So.
0: Yeah. No fun messing with freezing rain. That's the uh, least, least wanted precip in the wintertime as possible. So let's bring Andreas in uh, Andreas. We want to welcome you to the Carolina weather group. First time joining us. And uh, before we get into tonight's topic, we always ask our first time guests uh, to tell us a little bit about their self. So tell us how you got into, uh, into this crazy weather world that uh, we all enjoy being in.
5: Yeah, thank you for having me, Scotty. And it's really an honor to be here. Um, so I, I'm originally from Austria. I did my PhD there and my master's um, studying metrology and physics. And I always was fascinated by weather. Um, and especially over here in the US, I think you have much more interesting weather than we have in Europe. <laughs> So with all this severe convection and um, hurricanes and also the big winter storms. Um, And three years ago, I moved over to to Colorado to to work at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. And yeah, I started to work more and more on U.S. weather. And that's how I got involved in this mesoscale convective system and um, also halo modeling and things like that.
0: And so, Andreas, you've been doing a lot of research about uh, you're talking about the the convective thunderstorms especially uh something that we deal with here in the southeast a lot is uh, pop-up storms in the spring and summertime and uh systems that we call mcs's and before we get into your research uh maybe a lot of our uh, listeners who may not know all the uh, weather terms how about uh you kind of give us an idea of what an mcs is and then go into uh, the research that you've done
5: oh yeah so i think there are several definitions for MCSs, but uh, you can think about it as uh, several thunderstorms that start to organize, that start to act together. So often they start as single cells and then they start to organize, intensify and get really big. Um, So the the way we define MCSs in our studies is uh, we want to see a very large rainfall area, at least 60 miles in, in the diameter, it has to live for a longer period, like at least four hours. And um, it has to be intense enough, so you have to have enough, enough rainfall, which basically says it's it's a thunderstorm. It's it's severe convection that's going on. And these systems are really fascinating because they can be really, really big. They can be as big as major states. So they could cover both Carolinas, um, the cloud shield of these MCSs. So I, I maybe I can show a quick animation that People can get a feeling for what i'm talking about so in, in our study really looking at um the rainfall from this mcss and the related flooding so this is a case um from oh i haven't shared it sorry
1: so... okay there you go we got it and okay, i'll so... present that to everyone and you're good to go Great, thank you. Um, So this
5: is an extreme rainfall event that happened in 2016 in Virginia, in in West Virginia here. And what you see here is a radar image. And what we're looking at, these blue colors are showing you deep clouds. So they are really high clouds related to thunderstorms. And you can see how this MCS, so this MCS is basically this big blob of blue that you see here, is moving into the into uh, West Virginia here and stays in West Virginia for more than a day and drops tons of rainfall and then it's moving away from it. So this is exactly to cut the type of storms that we're talking about. You can also see in another MCS here uh, forming in Colorado and then drifting eastward. So MCSs are pretty frequent actually in summer in the US. Um, we have MCSs almost every day. And they are really the major source of of rainfall in in the U.S. Up to 60% of the rainfall in the central U.S. is coming from MCSs. But on the same side, if they are extreme, um, they are also related to most of the severe flooding events in in summertime, in the warm season. And for example, this this event in West Virginia was um, one of the most deadliest flooding events um, in recent history. I think 16 people died in this event. So they they can be really dangerous and very destructive.
0: And Andreas, um, through this research, you know, uh, you sent us your your research, and it was showing that you know these are storms are producing fifteen to at times sixty percent above normal rainfall for a lot of areas. And, and what do you think is, is the main driver of that? What, what causes us to see those more intense rainfall uh, uh, out of these MCS systems?
5: So um, the reason for that is so that the rainfall from MCS is, is actually closely related to temperature in the air. So um, as air is warming up, you can store more, more moisture in the air. So you can think about air like a sponge If you have warm air, the sponge is larger, and you can store more moisture in the air. If it's cold, like in wintertime, you don't get very strong downpours because you have very little moisture in the air. So if you have um, very warm air, um, and if it's humid enough, you can get very strong rainfall. So this is directly related to climate change. So what we see all over the US, for example, is a a strong increase in in temperatures over the last 30, 30 years. And at the same time, we see a strong increase in moisture in the air. So this this, this moisture is really the source that feeds these MCSs and that drives them. And you have more, you can think about, you have more fuel for these MCSs if if you have warmer temperatures. And that's why we are concerned about climate change and also in the future, that these MCSs will get more and more intense um, as we warm up the, the globe
1: more and more. Now, Andreas, how, how do you connect this with the subtropical jet stream? I mean, you, you talk about a lot of warm air aloft. You talk about, uh, you know, atmospheric rivers of water for, for the most part. I mean, some of that, that map you showed, it looks almost like a monsoonal trough at one point there. I mean, I know there's frontal activity involved, but that's a lot of moisture. I mean, how, what is the connection to the Pacific, maybe? Or is it uh, just that much energy in, in the central U.S.? so
5: the central us it's the the chat is is also important so um we there is this, this term which is called rich rich rollers so this mcs are often forming along the uh, the subtropical ridge in late summer and then really going along the ridge line following the chat but i think the the most important driver for this or the most important moisture source here is is the low-level chat in the US which is basically a daily feature building up in late afternoon and late evening in the early evening and transporting a lot of moist air from the Gulf along northwards, along um, the mountains, and then it's moving towards um, the east somewhere around Colorado. It depends on the season. In late season, it can propagate further northward. And this moisture transport is really the, the main source of moisture for these MCSs. And this is also what we see in observations. So we see that this moisture transport is increasing over the last 30 years, which is closely related to having more intense and more extreme
1: MCSs. Wow, very interesting. So another another question that may, um, you're talking about the low-level jetting at nighttime that helps transport the, the moisture uh, that is produced in the daytime during heating, radiational heating. And I got to ask. Uh, I'm going to share a screen here. I want to ask if this has anything to do with it. Now, for our audience out there, this is uh, urban heat island effects, which are lots of development, big cities, metropolitan areas that give off a larger heat signature over areas, and they actually provide superheating aloft over over these metropolitan areas. Uh, nearby lakes, rivers, and all that can feed into it. But would something like this also be in play with with these um, more intense MCSs that we're seeing today? It, it can be part of it. I think it's not the
5: main driver. So what these urban heat islands can do, um, they are a source of convergence. So air is flowing in into the heat island and then rising up. so they can start convection actually. and once you start a convection, the convection can uh, organize and grow upscale and get to and develop an MCS. But this MCS is a really long-lived feature. so what they what normally happens, so typical MCS is starting in the late afternoon or evening hours, somewhere along the front range in the U.S., and a um, single convective storms, and then it's organizing and moving eastward during the nighttime and growing, and then you have basically nighttime rainfall maxima in, in the central U.S., so this is uh, the so if you look into the climatology, you see it's it's a weird thing to get um, very strong rainfall rates in the middle of the night. But most regions in the central U.S. have that feature because of this propagating um, MCSs.
4: Andres, uh, I wanted to ask you about um, about this similar phenomena that um, that we see usually west of Memphis. Um, does uh, the, the terrain, so we've got the Ozarks, the o, uh, Arkansas, Missouri Ozarks, um, where frequently we'll see, you know, the beginnings of one of these farther east from the front range, you know, maybe in, in central Oklahoma, Kansas, um, and they really get going a lot of times in the evening and the early overnight hours. Do the, um, does the terrain from the Ozarks help to enhance that some too? And then a lot of times we see, and it's, you know, it's, it's a fairly routine pattern where um, as, those, as those MCSs move east southeast they start approaching the mississippi river in memphis and they tend to fall apart but it's usually in those early morning hours when they're naturally inclined to do so um and and i fight that quite a bit over here with well you know we've got the river we've got the bluffs we've got all these things that are causing these storms to fall apart when more often than not it's it's kind of just the natural cycle of those things so can you touch on that a little bit maybe on the, on the terrain enhancement and then um in just that natural cycle
5: so the terrain can definitely enhance the, the systems, especially so if you um, so the terrain is, is, is acting as an uplifting mechanism. So if you have flow that it's impinging the terrain, it lifts up the air and then it can lead to more convection. So the terrain has definitely a role in, in the development or in the intensification of, of the systems. And um, the second question, it's, I think what's really happening here, you see this also towards the north, the Mississippi Valley is really somehow the, the border where these MCSs fall apart. And and I think it's really related to the life cycle of the systems since they, they basically eat up all the energy during the night and then in the early morning hours, there's not a lot of energy left and then they fall apart because of that. And then it takes another cycle to, to recover and then we can get another set of MCSs in the next day. Yeah, thank you
1: and andreas one more now from some of your um, articles here i'm just sort of i'm just sort of picking out some and some information here out of your research uh, at ncar and it looks like that you have some intensive modeling that you use uh in the form of the, the wrf it's a really well-known model to meteorologists it's called the wharf uh it's weather research and forecasting models there's there's lots of uh customized versions of this but how do you use this for your studies and is it is it actually verifying and helping with with what you're doing oh yeah this is this is actually very exciting i think
5: because so the, the wolf model is is used for weather and climate simulations and um you need very high resolution to to simulate this mcss because you really need to uh, to explicitly resolve the the convection in the model and the the weather community realized that quite a while ago, maybe 20 years ago, where it transitioned into this, what we call convection permitting, correction resolving simulations. So very high resolution, because the benefit is really to to be able to simulate the severe convective storms. And nowadays, we have several um, models that forecast over the US um, in in very high resolution. Anchor, for example, has an ensemble-based forecasting system in four kilometers simul- resolution, which is able to to capture MCS and severe convection pretty well. And the climate community was lacking behind quite a bit because the problem in the climate community is we we run our models for much longer time periods. So in the weather community, you run the model maybe for a few days, maybe a few weeks out. In the climate community, we we talk about uh, years and decades. And now, since we have more and more computational resources, we, we can simulate climate in very high resolution. So you can think about the simulation that we did as a weather forecast, which is lasting for 13 years. So we basically start start, start the model and then we let it run for 13 years. So we get several summers in the seasons and we have thousands of, of MCSs in, in the simulation. And this is really helpful because then you can make robust um Robust statistics out of that. Perfect. I have
3: a question for you. So I read in your article that uh, flooding is one of the biggest concerns with the increased rainfall rates and that our urban areas are pretty much at risk because of this. Could you go on and kind of explain that, Uh, maybe some of the implications of uh, what we can expect in cities?
5: Oh yeah, it's, it's an excellent question. So, um, so this MCS, as I said, they're really the main drivers of big flooding in, in summertime, um, not only in the U.S., but in most mid-latitude regions. And um, what, what typically people, what we expect from climate change is an increase in extreme rainfall rates. And this increase, as I said before, is related to the increase in moisture in the atmosphere. So there is a relationship which relates the maximum Moisture that you can store in the atmosphere with the temperature, which is called Clausius-Clapeyron relationship, which is basically telling you that if you warm up the atmosphere by one degree Celsius, so 1.6 degree Fahrenheit, you will increase the moisture storage capacity by 6%, 6 to 7%. So there are a lot of studies that show that this is true in observations. So what we can see is um, due to the historic climate change that we are increasing our rainfall rates, the extreme rates by 7% per degree warming, oh, but 1.6 degree Fahrenheit. So this is basically what we already see from observations. And the models are showing us the same thing in the future. So if we what we did, we looked into a high emission scenario. So business as usual, if you just keep on emitting, greenhouse gases, as we we did so far, you get to something like four degrees, um, four to five degrees Celsius increase at the end of the century, which is seven, eight degrees Fahrenheit. So pretty severe increase. So if you multiply that with the 7% increase in rainfall rates in this storage, you get up to something like 30% increase in in extreme rainfall, which is very significant if you think about um, especially urban flooding. Um, what our study, and this is maybe, I have, I have a slide here that I wanted to share, or a picture. Um, so what we did, we looked into these increases. Can you see this figure? Yes, we got it. Perfect. So what we're looking into here is um, a composite of extreme MCS rainfalls. So basically, you can think about that. We we took several very strong MCSs, the rainfall fields, and put them above each other and average them. So what you get then is um, you see the center of the MCS. So the left picture is the current climate has very high rainfall rates, up to four inch per hour. So this is pretty severe rainfall that we see here. Then in each direction that you're going, you get a decrease in this rainfall rates. The right picture is showing you the future climate. So there are are two things that I wanted to point out, especially the the center. So the the maximum rain rates that are occurring here in the center are going up by approximately 30%. So this is really what we would expect from theory. And I think people started to realize that and and started to plan for that. But I think the the more severe change that we see in this figure is the spread of the area which has high-intensity rainfall. So just compare, this is the 0.4 inch contour here in the current climate. And this is the contour in the future climate. So the area which is covered by heavy rainfall is increasing by 80%. So this is much more than just the the average, the the maximum rain rate increase that we're seeing. So, why why this is important is if you, for example, think about a city area um, and you get a system like this in the current climate. Maybe only half of your city is covered by severe rainfall, by heavy rainfall. So your your sewage system and your water management system has to transport this water volume somehow out of the city. In the future climate, the city, the whole city might be covered by by severe rainfall. So this is basically what, what we're So what we're looking into in our study is this total rainfall volume over an area. So if you think about For example, we have this example of New York City in our our paper. If you look at the New York City area, um, in the current and the future climate, this rainfall, the total rainfall increase that we can get is increasing by 60%. And um, just to give you a feeling for how much water that is, it's approximately six times the average discharge of the Hudson River. So we are talking about a lot of water that we are introducing in future MCSs. And the problem with with cities is really that they have a lot of sealed surfaces. So so most of the water that's falling over a city will run off. And you have to somehow transport the water out of the city. And this is very challenging because um, if you have an increase of 60% rainfall, um, you only have limited amount or resources to increase the, the water um, security systems or management systems in the city. So I think this will be a very challenging situation if we if we continue to emit greenhouse gases in the way we do at the moment.
3: Mm-hmm. And to go ahead and build on that, uh, do you think emergency planners, city officials, and emergency managers uh, are aware of this change? Um, is there any kind of plan to try to educate them on this, on to expect this kind of rainfall change?
5: So, um, we had a recent press release on, on this article, and due, due to this press release, we got in contact with some um, city managers and water resource managers, and we, we started the discussion. I think, I I guess most of them are not really aware of that. So, basically, the, the study, what the study is really showing is that future flooding might be more severe than we expect. Uh-huh. um because most most if if for example if water resource or infrastructure managers would account for climate change i think they would account for this 7% per degree warming um change which which is pretty robust but i think um so far nobody really um accounts for this increase in the total rainfall volume over the area so I think there, there's um, a really need to start the discussion. And there are several, also several art articles coming out now which are looking at, for example, Hurricane Harvey. So hurricanes are a special category of MCSs. So they, 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 they meet all the criterions that you need for an MCS like big rainfall area, long lived, um, high rain rates. And there's a current study that showed that the, the rainfall or that events like Harvey, could get much more frequent in the future climate. Um, so there, there are definitely, so the, the science is building up that we can be pretty confident that we have, we will have a big problem. And we already have a big problem because we already changed our climate. And I think there's a large need to, to, to start a discussion with, with people on the ground to, to really um, build infrastructure which is capable of dealing with this water.
3: I completely agree with that. And I think it's great that you started the discussion with, you know, emergency managers and city officials. Uh, I always talk at work a lot in emergency management about how there's so much great research that can really help us every day in planning and things like that. But it's just really hard to kind of get access to that. And it's great that we're starting to build those bridges. So I think in the future, that's something that we should continue to do, try to spread these results, because you're right, if this is what the future is going to be, then we need to design our flood planning and our response planning to reflect that. Otherwise our emergency response plans are not going to fit it and we're going to be completely caught off guard.
5: Yeah, totally agree. So what what we started to do at NCAR, we developed a new model, which is called, called Wolf Hydro. So it's, um, or the National Water Model. So people at NCAR started to develop a hydrologic model for the entire U.S. And so what, what we did in our study, you really purely look at rainfall. And of course, rainfall is not directly related to flooding. So there are a lot of variables that, that impacts rainfall on the ground. Like, for example, if you are, have rainfall over a city area where, where you have a lot of sealed surfaces, you can have a very different flood response than if you would be, for example, somewhere in Florida where you have very sandy soils. So this is something that the next step that we are trying to do is to really bring our rainfall to the ground, look at inundation and runoff to really provide information which is as useful as possible for people like infrastructure planners and really try to, to get involved with them and try to get the information out.
3: Yeah, I completely agree with that. One more question for me. So I asked about emergency managers and their response. Um, how can we prepare the general public for maybe the future of what they can expect with these kinds of storms?
5: Yeah, this this is a a good question. So what we do at NCAR, um, we, we try to give public seminars. We have these press releases where we try to um, reach out to the press and get our research, which is... publicly relevant um, out into the media. So uh, we're really trying hard to to get our results out um, to people who are affected from them. Um, I think there's still a lot of uh, potential to improve that. So Anchor, for example, one of the missions of Anchor is really outreach and education. So what Anchor has is um, a special program which, which, which is called Comet. Which um, where they provide um, courses on on specific topics for educators and uh, also for the general public, where the public can access this this material and read up. It's it's very well done and it's pretty easy to follow. Um, so we are really trying to to make this bridge to communicate our science. But I, I totally agree. There is a lot of. Um, area for improvements to do this better and more extensively
3: definitely yes. and I, I think we can start with the emergency managers educate them and then we can continue on the public education from there
1: oh yeah Yeah, well, I think this would be a good way to go I was gonna say um, I was sharing something a second ago there that that sort of furthers the point uh, right there in that first sentence it says uh, rainfall events are estimated to cause more than 20 billion of economic losses I mean when you start throwing numbers out there, uh, you know, that, that sort of thing should grab folks' attention. So I, I'm assuming that when you throw these numbers out there, they're based on um, absolute fact and, you know, and some of your findings and some of your research to back that up. Uh, but do you get more response in telling them how much of an economic impact this is going to have from a dollar standpoint? Or do you find it uh, more uh, influential to talk about the rain events themselves and the flooding events? Now I think you really have to
5: break it down to the impacts. So, um, and this is one way to do it. So, what our group is doing at NCAR we, we have strong collaborations with the insurance industry because these numbers are really coming from the insurance at the end, and they they are really interested in this this results as well because they have to um, update their policies and and um, try to be on top of their game and, and really are interested in the research. Um, so, this is one way to go. Um, but I think what's often really necessary, this is a little bit unfortunate, I think, is that you get hit by a big event and then you you realize that you're in trouble. I think events like Sandy, Katrina or Harvey this year, for example, are, are really sometimes necessary to, to raise awareness that we we are in problems, that that we are not doing a really good job in, in handling these natural disasters. And there is a lot of area of improvement, not only on the flooding side, but also with other disasters as well.
1: OK, one more for me. Uh, I don't know if anyone else has any questions, but um, I know we're, we're starting to get kind of close towards the 9 o'clock hour. But uh, we have a lot of this activity going on in the United States being re- researched right now. Uh, are there other areas of the world that are being watched for this as well? I think all over the world, actually.
5: So um, we have a lot of flooding in Southeast Asia, for example. There were big floodings in Indonesia and in Pakistan. Um, there were really big floodings in Australia. So I think this is a global problem, and um, especially in the mid latitudes where where a lot of people are living. So I think these, this this increasing flooding is one of the most severe consequences of climate change, at least inland, for inland areas especially. So there are, especially in Europe and in Australia, I know there are groups working on similar, similar studies and doing similar things, but we are just really at the beginning of our ability to understand how these systems might change. Because, as I said before, you really need huge computers. So Anchor has a supercomputer that we used. It took us um, more than a year to finish the simulation. So it's 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 very computational um, demanding. And yeah, so but this is this is definitely a, a global topic that we are looking at here.
4: Andres, I've got uh, one more for you. And I don't know if, if uh, you know the answer to this question, but because I know you're focusing on the flooding. But um, is there other research maybe by colleagues of of yours on on the same types of systems and the same atmosphere that they'll be encountering that would affect things like other other parts of that storm, say increased lightning, stronger winds through downbursts and so forth that naturally occur out of the MCSs and so
5: forth? So uh, I'm not sure about the downpours. Um... Uh, the, the winds. So the winds are still a little bit challenging. We wanted to look into winds in our simulations, but I think for the winds, you almost need even higher resolution than we what we do at the moment. There, this is one of the main focus areas at the moment um, to try to also simulate lightning in this, or at least um, get a relationship to lightning in the simulations. I know there was a paper a few years ago where they showed a nice relationship between lightning and rainfall rates and CAPE. So CAPE is basically a measurement of the buoyancy of air, so how, how much buoyant air is. And the argument in this paper was, since we, we know the rainfall rates will increase in the future, and we know, we're pretty sure that this CAPE, the buoyancy will increase in the future, you could expect that the lightning is increasing. But there's there's definitely um, a large uncertainty bar on this statement. But this is definitely something people are starting to look at.
4: I would think that the uh, the new instruments like the uh, GOES Lightning Mapper, or geostationary lightning mapper off the GOES sixteen certainly would help in doing some of that research because now you can, you know, start to, to start to visualize that more directly, perhaps
5: than you could before. Yeah, no, this uh, our group the, the, part of our lab that does weather forecasting is is focusing on lightning, and they're really interested in in forecasting lightning. Um, So there is a project they're working on. And um, so I think there will be quite some improvement in the next couple of years. Another area I think which um, is very interesting and people are working on is severe hail. Um, So this system can be related to hail as well. Um, Not only those systems, but also supercells And there was just a recent study that um, many regions of the U.S. might see an increase in in severe hail due to climate change. So I think overall, the the summary of that is severe convection will be
1: getting more severe in the future and more frequent. Fascinating. Thanks a lot. I think we saw that with our hurricane season this year. Holy moly, Maria blew up where where it was at in the Caribbean. That was amazing. That, That rainfall amount right there. Uh, over Puerto Rico, parts of St. Croix in Puerto Rico is just amazing, amazing. Yeah, and, and climate change definitely plays a role into
5: that because um, just looking in, into the sea surface temperature in the Atlantic and the Caribbean, when these hurricanes occurred, you could see that there was a clear, higher sea surface temperature. This is exactly what you would expect from climate change. So there's there's um, so clear relationship, especially with the intensity of storms. We expect to get more high intensity storms in the future.
0: Well, Andreas, we appreciate uh, you coming on the show tonight. Uh, we are closing in on the uh, nine o'clock hour here Eastern time. I do wanna ask one last question. Um, you know, you don't do this research for nothing. What is what is the goal? What, what is uh, you guys that, that's done the research and NCAR, what are your goals of, of, I know you said press conferences, but how are you getting this message out what are you wanting uh, people to uh, start realizing or start taking a change in?
5: So yeah, this it's a very challenging, challenging thing. So we are really trying hard to to get the information out to the people. Um, and but I think yeah, but the problem is really we don't have a lot of time left. So what 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 we think would be is a, a safe margin for. Climate change is an increase of two degrees Celsius. and if we keep on continue, uh, continuing emitting, this will we will hit this threshold within twenty years or so. So we only have a few years left to to adapt. And I'm 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 not certain how to how to get this change. I think. So it what what makes me optimistic is that you see a lot of change coming from private companies and industry like a shift to solar energy to renewable energies to ele- electric mobility and things like that which is definitely helping the, the, the question is really if we do this fast enough um and from a scientific viewpoint i think yeah i think we we really have to try to communicate this better but also to get into a discussion it's it's, it's challenging because it's it's what what we don't want to do is is preaching our science to the public discussion and also acknowledging like um, viewpoints from the public I, I can I can understand there that people could be afraid of this information because it's if, if I look into this the simulations I, i'm I'm alert and I'm really um, as well how the future might look like so i think this uh, it's it's a lot of psychology how to how to interact how to communicate that in a way that that is really beneficial to to all all participants
0: andreas we appreciate your time and we appreciate your research and uh you know any way that we can help uh, you guys out you let us know i would like to extend an uh, invitation to you to um Maybe mention any websites or, or social media sites that our followers or listeners can uh, reach out to you or even learn more about your research.
5: So I, I have a personal website, um, which I have to look up. <laughs> so and, and what I would say is is really take a look at, at Anchor's website, especially um, Atmos News. So there is Atmos News is a is the platform where NCAR is is highlighting research for media and for the public. And this is a really good resource to to find new research um, online.
3: Um. Yeah, and to add to that, I think yeah. NCAR Atmos News has a Twitter because so I think I just followed them today.
5: So I think this is a very good resource for for Twitter, twittering as well. So I, I just bring up my website um, here for a second where I also try to to highlight recent research. Um, so you have like a media section on, on press releases or uh, publications and also contacts here that you can you can approach me and ask questions get get into a dialogue and I'm really really um I would be really happy if if people you would use this this um, this tool to get get into contact, get into this discussion, and yeah, get the word out.
0: Very cool. We'll see if we can get James, our our tech guy, to uh, link your website onto uh, our podcast here as we uh, put it up on our website. But we we appreciate your time, and uh, hopefully we can uh, have you back on the show sometime soon with some new research.
5: Yeah, this would be great. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun.
0: Thank you, Andreas. Have a, have a good evening. Stick uh, fair, uh, Feel free to stick around if you want to. Uh, we are, uh, since we're a little bit after 9 o'clock, going to switch to our tweets of the weeks before we end our show. So um, does anybody have theirs ready to go uh, to share? For,
2: uh... I can share that video I was just talking about if you'd like, Scotty. Yeah,
0: yeah, James. So James has uh, been... Uh, uh, honing in on the the California fires and then the the intense rainfall they've had this week and James, you found some a good video out of uh, some of the South, Car- or South Carolina, Southern California area.
2: Yeah, that's right. And I, I think it was Ashley who mentioned it on our air last week that as soon as these heavy rains came into California in the areas where they have had those wildfires, uh, that we were going to potentially see something to this extent. So uh, we were just looking at some of our, our latest uh, wire video here, and we do have some footage that came in. This is the Coast Guard there in Southern California. This video was released uh, yesterday. and and recorded yesterday. So we have a Coast Guard MH-60T Jayhawk helicopter, for those of you who are into aviation, uh, over a home here where they are rescuing a family of five, including the mother, father, their newborn, a seven-year-old son, their three-year-old daughter and two dogs. This is in Santa Barbara, California, after the house was overtaken by the mudslide that you've been hearing about in the headlines uh, that has uh, unfortunately killed several people and dozens more uh, still remain missing at this hour as, as officials try to comb through uh, those mudslides. So the family that we're seeing in this video was transported to a staging area where they were assisted um, by emergency crews. We have a, a, another video that, uh, if I were to fast forward this, it's a similar story. I'll let this one play out, but uh, in that second video uh it's an it's another large family eight people and five dogs uh all can be seen getting onto the, the video there so that uh the coast guard could help them get out of their neighborhood after the mudslides made area roads impassable so uh lots of uh, search and rescue and recovery efforts continuing uh tonight in southern california so we certainly keep those people in our thoughts scotty
0: definitely so a sad situation going on out there and it seems like um uh they're dealing with so much with the fires and now with the flooding and the mudslides, uh, they just need a break out there. So hopefully, uh, we can get some uh, calmer weather out there. So, uh, thanks for that, um, tweet or video of the week, James, and uh, we will toss it around. Let's see. Shea, do you have yours ready or Eric? I do know?
1: actually, let me go ahead right. and pop that up. Uh, this is for all the folks that don't quite understand what black ice is and how dangerous it can be. Uh, this is from a uh, County of Virginia. And this is from Kelly Besicker. Her husband Tim went out to hit his car to go to work that morning. Uh, this was January the 9th, and found uh, quite a surprise. So I'm going to go ahead and play this, and uh, I'm going to blow the screen up, and you can see just how you know he's going downhill right towards the main street. The car's going by. Uh, you know he 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 ate it pretty hard in the grass. I'm not going to lie, but the, the the good thing is is that he's okay. His wife said he's fine, uh, but. You know, you just, you know, that kind of thing, you can get hurt right there. I mean, it's almost like a curling episode you'd see in the Olympics. I mean, he did pretty good. I thought he did pretty good. I give him about a yeah. seven and a half.
2: I'm impressed he didn't take the
0: mailbox out behind him.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, once he started heading towards the street, you could see those feet shuffling.
0: Uh, well, I'm going to, uh, so we got Eric sub. So, Eric, go ahead.
4: Okay. All right. Uh, so... We're getting some winter weather on Friday, but for some people here in the area, this is not the actual first winter weather we've had this year. Um, this is a tweet from uh, Weather Service Memphis back on January 1st, the morning, New Year's morning. Some of us were up just early enough to be able to catch what actually turned out to be in this very cold Arctic air mass with strong north winds blowing uh, lake and river effect snow across West Tennessee. It actually extended down to North Mississippi, and this is a video, but it's uh, it you really can't tell it that it's moving when it's going through here. But basically, uh, up here in the center of the screen, um, right on the Tennessee-Kentucky border, this is uh, the land between the lakes, or Kentucky Lake. It's a big recreational area, pretty large lake up there. And you can see the streamer of clouds that extends all the way down through West Tennessee and actually down into northern Mississippi. Uh, And then over here, close to the Mississippi River, Memphis being right downstream from that, there's a couple of other streamers through there. And uh, actually, even here at my house, we had... Uh, some flurries that were up in the eaves of the roofs around here, um, and uh, they are suspecting, and I, I tend to agree with them here, that we actually got some river-effect snow from the cold air blowing over the warm Mississippi River uh, and creating that streamer that uh, went right down through the middle of the city. here. So, pretty cool event. We don't see this very often, but every once in a while, uh, enough cold air in this time of year to uh, to be able to see something like that.
1: Yeah, how about that, Eric? You don't even have to go anywhere. You just let high-pressure work its way in
0: exactly right that's amazing um ashley do you have yours ready
3: i think i just pulled it up you guys see it
0: Uh, not yet
1: every time
3: i try to do that it asks me for permission okay how about now
1: you have permission
3: all right (laughs) So as you guys know, AMS is going on this week. I've been glued to Twitter, trying to read all the slides, the presentations. Um, The theme for AMS this year was communications. So how are we talking about weather risk to the community, not only the general public, but also our highly vulnerable people. So that might be colorblind, uh, deaf, things like that. And this tweet from Morgan Abigail was from a discussion from Bolton which they actually did a study and showed what NWS's color scale would look like to a colorblind person. And it's very scary. If you take a look, a lot of the colors look the exact same. So if I'm colorblind to certain colors, I might see your warning as the same as another type of warning. So I thought this was kind of a awakening call um, for us to try to remember to plan and uh, just explore how we can notify different kinds of people when we might just not think to do that kind of thing. So
2: this is not a pun, Ashley, but that is very eye opening to really (laughs) drive the point home. I couldn't think of a better way to describe it because you're right. and, And for anyone who's listening to our podcast, we're looking at blues and browns and yellows and you've got like six yellows, eight yellows that are the exact same color. Mm
0: hmm. I'll say from personal, this this does affect me. Uh, I have Some colors I can't tell, uh, different shades and stuff. So I'm totally on this. And I actually reached out to uh, to Bolton, uh, the guy who was giving this presentation today on Twitter, hoping to get him on our show to talk about this because it's something that really interests me. And um, hopefully we can uh, have him on sometime this year to talk about that. But it's a real problem. I think for me, uh, especially when you got these winter weather uh advisories and stuff and they all kind of blend in as the same color and it just it's not good so um definitely Mm -hmm. needs to be addressed exactly all right well i'll screen share uh my tweet of the week i'm working with a new computer so you got to
1: give me just a second
0: all right can you guys see mine
1: you are good to go scotty Uh
0: All right. So this is from Montana Eck. He's a student at Appalachian State University, and uh, it's been so cold around here. We've not really had any wintry weather to deal with, but uh, we did have uh, eight straight days of temperatures below freezing. And so numerous waterfalls throughout western North Carolina just froze up. And this is actually um, the Tom Creeks Falls um waterfall up on the uh, pesca national forest shay you may have went by this when you were evacuating from uh, the hurricane earlier this year uh this is in northern mcdowell county but again this is completely froze over i have noticed though in the past couple of days uh those ponds and and water fountains and stuff like that are starting to fall out a little bit but amazing uh, video or videos and pictures a uh, little plug here if you go to the foothillsweathernetwork.com we have a uh, gallery up of numerous waterfalls and stuff that are fro- that have been frozen throughout uh, the past week from the wintry wet or from the wintry Arctic cold weather that we've had. So uh, that was my tweet of the week was the uh, frozen waterfalls. So uh, if you have a tweet over the week or something you'd like for us to look at, tag us on Twitter. We'll definitely uh, love to share that out. Uh, and before we um, close our show tonight, I want to give you an update on our schedule. Next week we're going to be talking about. Um, kind of going hand in hand with what we talked about a little bit earlier the opposite of that forecasting wildfires from droughts so uh we're going to be talking with todd lindley he is the uh, science and operations officer at the north the national weather service in norman oklahoma he'll be joining us next week as we talk about forecasting wildfires the next week we'll have weather and arts samantha burks Uh, will be joining us. She's a meteorologist and an artist. So she's kind of combined two passions together. Uh, Shay was able to do a test hangout with her last night and said that she has some really awesome uh, paintings and stuff like that. So can't wait to talk about that. As we end up uh, or round out the uh, month of January, we're going to be continuing our hurricane theme and recapping Hurricane Irma. We have Matt Moreland, who was at the time the uh, uh, meteorologist in charge at the National Weather Service in Key West. Uh, he will be our guest. He's now in San Diego, but he was in Key West here in Irma. So uh, he'll join us and talk to us about um, Hurricane Irma and all the effects on the uh, Florida Keys. So that is the rest of our January schedule. As always, if you have any guests or any certain topics you'd like us to talk about, send us a tweet or a message and we'll get on to working, uh, getting that on the schedule and get some guests lined up. So with that, you guys have anything before we close? All right. Well, thank you for watching the Carolina Weather Group. We hope you have a great weekend. And if you're in the Memphis area, stay safe out there during the ice apocalypse. Uh, Stay off the roads and follow MemphisWeather.net. Eric and his crew will keep you up to date. And uh, we'll see you next week here on the Carolina Weather Group.